bridge to Terabithia. This is part 11, and it's called No. Something whirled around inside Jess's head. He opened his mouth, but it was dry, and no words came out. He jerked his head from one face to the next for someone to help him. Finally, his father spoke, his big rough hand stroking his wife's hair and his eyes downcast, watching the motion. They found the Burke girl this morning down in the creek. No, he said, finding his voice. Leslie wouldn't drown. She could swim real good. The old rope you kids been swinging on broke. His father went quietly and relentlessly on. They think she must have hit her head on something when she fell. No, he shook his head. No, his father looked up. I'm real sorry, boy. No, Jess was yelling now. I don't believe you. You're lying to me. He looked around again wildly for someone to agree, but they all had their heads down, except Maybelle, whose eyes were wide with terror. But, Leslie, what if you die? No, he said straight at Maybelle. It's a lie. Leslie ain't dead. He turned around and ran out the door, letting the screen bang sharply against the house. He ran down the gravel to the main road and then started running west, away from Washington and Millsburg and the old Perkins place. An approaching car beeped and swerved and beeped again, but he hardly noticed. Leslie, dead, girlfriend, rope, broke, fell, you, you. The words exploded in his head like corn against the sides of the pauper. God, dead, you, Leslie, dead, you. He ran until he was stumbling, but he kept on, afraid to stop, knowing somehow that running was the only thing that could keep Leslie from being dead. It was up to him. He had to keep going. Behind him came the peripety of the pickup, but he couldn't turn around. He tried to run faster, but his father passed him and stopped the pickup just ahead, then jumped out and ran back. He picked Jess up in his arms as though he were a baby. For the first few seconds, Jess kicked and struggled against the strong arms, then just gave himself over to the numbness that was buzzing to be let out from a corner of his brain. He leaned his weight upon the door of the pickup and let his head thud, thud against the window. His father drove stiffly without speaking, though once he cleared his throat as though he were going to say something, but he glanced at Jess and closed his mouth. When they pulled up at his house, the father sat quietly and Jess could feel the man's uncertainty, so he opened the door and got out, and with the numbness flooding through him, went in and lay down on his bed. He was awake, jerked suddenly into consciousness in the black stillness of the house. He sat up, stiff and shivering, although he was fully dressed from his windbreaker down to his sneakers. He could hear the breathing of the little girls in the next bed, strangely loud and uneven and quiet. Some dream must have awakened him, but he could not remember it. He could only remember the mood of the dread it had brought with it. Through the curtainless window, he could see the lopsided moon with hundreds of stars dancing in bright attendance. It came into his mind that someone had told him that Leslie was dead, but he knew now that he had been that it had been part of a, a dreadful dream. Leslie could not die any more than he himself could die. But the words turned over uneasily in his mind like leaves stirred up by a cold wind. If he got up now and went down to the old Perkins place and knocked on the door, Leslie would open it, P.T. jumping at her heels like a star around the moon. It was a beautiful night. Perhaps they could run over the hill and across the field to the stream and swing themselves into Terabithia.
They had never been there in the dark, but there was enough moon for them to find their way into the castle, and he could tell her about his day in Washington and apologize. It had been so dumb of him not to ask Leslie to go to. He and Leslie and Miss Edmonds could have had a wonderful day, different, of course, from the day he and Miss Edmonds had had, but still good, still perfect. Miss Edmonds and Leslie liked each other a lot. It would have been fun to have Leslie along. I'm really sorry, Leslie. He took off his jacket and sneakers and crawled under the covers. I was dumb not to think of asking. It's okay, Leslie would say. I've been to Washington thousands of times. Did you ever see the buffalo hunt? Somehow, it was the one thing in all Washington that Leslie had never seen, and so he could tell her about it, describing the tiny beasts hurtling to destruction. His stomach felt suddenly cold. It had something to do with the buffalo, with falling, with death, with the reason he had not remembered to ask if Leslie could go with them to Washington today. You know something weird? What? Leslie asked. I was scared to come to Terabithia this morning. The coldness threatened to spread up from his stomach. He turned over and lay on it. Perhaps it would be better not to think about Leslie right now. He would go see her first thing in the morning and explain everything. He could explain it better in the daytime when he had shaken off the effects of his unremembered nightmare. He put his mind to remembering the day in Washington, working on details of pictures and statues, dredging up the sound of Miss Edmund's voice, recalling his own exact words and her exact answers. Occasionally, into the corner of his mind's vision would come a sensation of falling, but he pushed it away with the view of another picture or the sound of another conversation. Tomorrow, he must share it all with Leslie. The next thing he was aware of was the sun streaming through the window. The little girl's bed was only rumpled covers, and there was movement and quiet talking from the kitchen. Lord, poor Miss Bessie, he'd forgotten all about her last night, and how late it must be. He fell for his sneakers and shoved his feet over the hills without tying the laces. His mother looked up quickly from the stove at the sound of him. Her face was set for a question, but she just nodded her head at him. The coldness began to come back. I forgot Miss Bessie. Your daddy's milking her. I forgot last night, too. She kept nodding her head. Your daddy did it for you. But it wasn't an accusation. You feel like some breakfast? Maybe that was why his stomach felt so odd. He hadn't had anything to eat since ice cream Miss Edmonds had brought them at Millsburg's on the way home. Brenda and Ellie stared up at him from the table. The little girls turned from their cartoon show at the TV to look at him and then turned quickly back. He sat down on the bench. His mother put a plateful of pancakes in front of him. He couldn't remember the last time she had made pancakes. He doused them with syrup and began to eat. They tasted marvelous. You don't even care, do you? Brenda was watching him from across the table. He looked at her puzzled, his mouth full. If Jimmy Dix died, I wouldn't be able to eat a bite. The coldness curled up from inside him and flopped over. Will you shut your mouth, Brenda Aarons? His mother sprang forward, the pancake turner held threateningly high. Well, Mama, he's just sitting there eating pancakes like nothing happened. I'd be crying my eyes out. Ellie was looking first at Mrs. Aarons and then at Brenda. Boys ain't supposed to cry at times like this, are they, Mama? Well, it don't seem right for him to be sitting there eating like a brute sow. I'm telling you, Brenda, if you don't shut your mouth. He could hear them talking, but they were farther away than the memory of the dream. 
He ate and he chewed and he swallowed, and when his mother put three more pancakes on his plate, he ate them too. His father came in with the milk. He poured it carefully into the empty cider jugs and put them in the refrigerator. Then he washed his hands at the sink and came to the table. As he passed Jess, he put his hand lightly on the boy's shoulder. He wasn't angry about the milking. Jess was only dimly aware that his parents were looking at each other and then at him. Mrs. Ahrens gave Brenda a hard look and gave Mr. Ahrens a look which was to say that Brenda was to be kept quiet. But Jess was only thinking of how good the pancakes had been and hoping his mother would put down some more in front of him. He knew somehow that he shouldn't ask for more, but he was disappointed that she didn't give him any. He thought then that he should get up and leave the table, but he wasn't sure where he was supposed to go or what he was supposed to do. Your mother and I thought we would go to town, would go down to the neighbors and pay respects. His father cleared his throat. I think it would be fitting for you to come too. He stopped again, saying you was the only one that really knowed the little girl. Just tried to understand what his father was saying to him, but he felt stupid. What little girl? He mumbled it, knowing it was the wrong thing to ask. Ellie and Brenda both gasped. His father leaned down the table and put his big hand on top of Jess's hand. He gave his wife a quick, troubled look, but she just stood there, her eyes full of pain, saying nothing. Your friend Leslie is dead, Jesse. You need to understand that. Jess slid his hand out from under his father's. He got up from the table. I know it ain't an easy thing. Jess could hear his father speaking as he went into the bedroom. He came back out with his windbreaker on. You ready to go now? His father got up quickly. His mother took off her apron and patted her hair. Maybelle jumped up from the rug. I want to go too, she said. I never seen a dead person before. No, Maybelle sat down again as though slapped down by her mother's voice. We don't even know where she's laid out at, Maybelle, Mr. Ahrens said more gently. Part 12. Stranded. They walked slowly across the field and down the hill to the old Perkins place. There were four or five cars parked outside. His father raised the knocker. Jess could hear P.T. barking from the back of the house and rushing to the door. Hush, P.T., a voice which Jess did not know said, down. The door was opened by a man who was half, half leaning over to hold the dog back. At the sight of Jess, P.T. snatched himself loose and leapt joyfully upon the boy. Jess picked him up and rubbed the back of the dog's neck as he used to when P.T. was a tiny puppy. I see he knows you, the strange man said with a funny half smile on his face. Come in, won't you? He stood back for the three of them to enter. They went into the golden room and it was just the same except more beautiful because the sun was pouring through the south windows. Four or five people Jess had never seen before were sitting about, whispering some, but mostly not talking at all. There was no place to sit down, but the strange man was bringing chairs from the dining room. The three of them sat down stiffly and waited, not knowing what to wait for. An older woman got up slowly from the couch and came over to Jess's mother. Her eyes were red under her perfectly white hair. I'm Leslie's grandmother, she said, putting out her hand. His mother took it awkwardly. Miss Ahrens, she said in a low voice, from up the hill. Leslie's grandmother shook his mother's and then his father's hands. Thank you for coming, she said. Then she turned to Jess. You must be Jess, she said. Jess nodded. Leslie, her eyes filled up with tears. Leslie told me about you. 
For a minute, just thought she was going to say something else. He didn't want to look at her, so he gave himself over, over to rubbing P.T., who was hanging across his lap. I'm sorry, her voice broke. I can't bear it. The man who had opened the door came up and put his arm around her. As he was leading her out of the room, Jess could hear her crying. He was glad she was gone. There was something weird about a woman. Like that crying? It was as if the lady who talked about Polydent on TV had suddenly burst into tears. It didn't fit. He looked around at the room full of red-eyed adults. Look at me, he wanted to say them. I'm not crying. A part of him stepped back and examined this thought. He was the only person his age he knew whose best friend had died. It made him important. The kids at school money would probably whisper around him and treat him with respect, the way they'd all treated Billy Joe Weems last year after his father had been killed in a car crash. He wouldn't have to talk to anybody if he didn't want to, and all the teachers would be especially nice to him. Mama would even make the girls be nice to him. He had a sudden desire to see Leslie laid out. He wondered if she were back in the library or in Millsburg at one of the funeral parlors. Would they bury her in blue jeans? Or maybe that blue jumper at the and the flowery blouse she'd worn at Easter? That would be nice. People might snicker at the blue jeans, and he didn't want anyone to snicker at Leslie when she was dead. Bill came into the room. P.T. slid off Jess's lap and went to him. The man leaned down and rubbed the dog's back. Jess stood up. Jess, Bill came over to him and put his arm around him as though he'd, he'd been Leslie instead of himself. Bill held him close so that a button on his sweater was pressing painfully into Jess's forehead, but as uncomfortable as he was, Jess didn't move. He could feel Bill's body shaking, and he was afraid that if he looked up, he would see, he would see Bill crying too. He didn't want to see Bill crying. He wanted to get out of this house. It was smothering him. Why wasn't Leslie here to help to help him out of this? Why didn't she come running in and make everyone laugh again? You think it's so great to die and make everyone cry and carry on? Well, it, it ain't. She loved you, you know. He could tell from Bill's voice that he was crying. She told me once that if it weren't for you, his voice broke completely. Thank you he said a moment later. Thank you for being such a wonderful friend to her. Bill didn't like, Bill didn't sound like himself. He sounded like someone in an old mushy movie, the kind of person Leslie and Jess would laugh at and imitate later. Boo-hoo, you were such a wonderful friend to her. He couldn't help moving back just enough to get his forehead off the stupid button. To his relief, Bill let go. He heard his father ask Bill quietly over his head about the service, and Bill answering quietly, almost in his regular voice, that they had decided to have the body cremated and were going to take the ashes to his family home in Pennsylvania tomorrow. Cremated? Something clicked inside Jess's head. That meant Leslie was gone. Turned to ashes, he would never see her again. Not even dead. Never. How could they dare? Leslie belonged to him, more to him than anyone in the world. No one had even asked him. No one even told him. And now he was never going to see her again, and all they could do was cry. Not for Leslie. They weren't crying for Leslie. They were crying for themselves, just themselves. If they cared at all for Leslie, they would have never brought her to this rotten place. He had to hold tightly to his hands for fear he might suck Bill in the face. He, Jess, was the only one who really cared for Leslie. 
but Leslie had failed him. She went and died just when he needed her the most. She went and left him. She went swinging on that rope just to show him that she was no coward. So there, Jess Aarons, she was probably somewhere right now laughing at him, making fun of him like he was Mrs. Myers. She had tricked him. She had made him leave his old self behind and come into her world. And then before he was really at home in it, but too late to go back, she had left him stranded there, like an astronaut wandering about on the moon, alone. He was never sure later, just when he left the old Perkins place, but he remembered running up the hill towards his own house with angry tears streaming down his face. He banged through the door. Maybelle was standing there, her brown eyes wide. Did you see her? She asked excitedly. Did you see her laid out? He hit her in the face as hard as he had ever hit anything in his life. She stumbled backwards from him with a little yelp. He went into the bedroom and felt under the mattress until he retrieved all his papers and the paints that Leslie had given him at Christmas time. Ellie was standing in the bedroom door, fussing at him. He pushed past her. From the couch, Brenda, too, was complaining, but the only sound that really entered his head was that of Maybelle whimpering. He ran out the kitchen door and down the field all the way to the stream without looking back. The stream was a little lower than it had been when he had seen it last. Above, from the crabapple tree, the frayed end of the rope swinging gently. I am now the fastest runner in the fifth grade. He screamed something without words and flung the papers and paints into the dirty brown water. The paints floated on top, riding the current like a boat, but the paper swirled about, soaking in the muddy water, being sucked down, around, and down. He watched them all disappear. Gradually, his breath quieted and his heart slowed from its wild pace. The ground was still muddy from the rains, but he sat down anyway. There was nowhere to go. Nowhere ever again. He put his head down on his knee. That was a damn fool thing to do. His father sat down on the dirt beside him. I don't care. I don't care. He was crying now, crying so hard he could barely breathe. His father pulled Jess over on his lap as though he were Joyce Ann. There. There, he said, patting his head. Shh, shh. I hate her, Jess said through his sobs. I hate her. I wish I'd never seen her in my whole life. His father stroked his hair without speaking. Jess grew quiet. They both watched the water. Finally, his father said, Hell, ain't it? It was the kind of thing Jess could hear his father saying to another man. He found it strangely comforting, and it made him bold. Do you believe people go to hell? Really go to hell, I mean? You ain't worrying about Leslie Burke. It did seem peculiar, but still. Well, Maybell said, Maybell? Maybell ain't God. Yeah, but how do you know what God does? Lord boy, don't be a fool. God ain't gonna send any little girls to hell. He had never in his life thought of Leslie Burke as a little girl, but still God was sure to. She wouldn't have been 11 until November. They got up and began to walk up the hill. I didn't mean that about hating her, he said. I don't know what made me say that. His father nodded to show he understood. Everyone, even Brenda, was gentle to him. Everyone except Maybelle, who hung back as though afraid to have anything to do with him. He wanted to tell her he was sorry, but he couldn't. He was too tired. He just couldn't say the words. He had to make it up to her, and he was too tired to figure out how. That afternoon, Bill came up to the house. They were about to leave for Pennsylvania, and he wondered if Jess would take care of the little dog until they got back. 
Sure. He was glad Bill wanted him to help. He was afraid he had hurt Bill by running away this morning. He wanted, too, to know that Bill didn't blame him for anything, but it was not the kind of question he could put into words. He held P.T. and waved as the dusty little Italian car turned into the main road. He thought he saw them wave back, but it was too far away to be sure. His mother had never allowed him to have a dog, but she made no objection to P.T. being in the house. P.T. jumped up on his bed and slept all night with P.T.'s body curled against his chest. Part 13. Building the Bridge He woke up Saturday morning with a dull headache. It was still early, but he got up. He wanted to do the milking. His father had done it ever since Thursday night, but he wanted to go back to it to somehow make things normal again. He shut P.T. in the shed, and the dog's whimpering reminded him of Maybelle and made his headache worse. But he couldn't have P.T. yapping at Miss Bessie while he tried to milk. No one was awake when he brought the milk in to put it away, so he poured a warm glass for himself and got a couple of pieces of light bread. He wanted his paints back, and he decided to go down and see if he could find them. He let P.T. out of the shed and gave the dog a half piece of bread. It was a beautiful spring morning. Early wildflowers were dotting the deep green of the fields, and the sky was clean and, and blue. The creek had fallen well below the bank and seemed less terrifying than before. A large branch was washed up into the bank, and he hauled it up to the narrowest place and laid it bank to bank. He stepped on it, and it seemed firm, so he crossed on it, foot over foot to the other side, grabbing the smaller branches which grew out from the main one toward the opposite bank to keep his balance. There was no sign of his paints. He landed slightly upstream from Terabithia. If it was still Terabithia, if it could be entered across a branch instead of swung into, P.T. was left crying piteously on the other side. Then the dog took courage and paddled across the stream. The current carried him past Jess, but he made it safely to the bank and ran back, shaking great drops of cold water on Jess. They went into the castle stronghold. It was dark and damp, but there was no evidence there to suggest that the queen had died. He felt the need to do something fitting, but Leslie was not there to tell him what it was. The anger which had possessed him yesterday flared up again. Leslie, I'm just a dumb dodo, and you know it. What am I supposed to do? The coldness inside of him had moved upward into his throat, constricting it. He swallowed several times. It occurred to him that he probably had cancer of the throat. Wasn't that one of the seven de deadly sins, difficulty in swallowing? He began to sweat. He didn't want to die. Lord, he was just ten years old. He had hardly begun to live. Leslie, were you scared? Did you know you were dying? Were you scared, like me? A picture of Leslie being sucked into the cold water flashed across his brain. Come on, Prince Tarion, he said quite loudly. We must make a funereal wreath for the queen. He sat in the clear space between the bank and the first line of trees and bent a pine bough into a circle, tying it with a piece of wet string from the castle. And because it looked cold and green, he picked spring beauties from the forest floor and wove them among the needles. He put it down in front of him. A cardinal flew down to the bank, cocked his brilliant head, and seemed to stare at the wreath. P.T. let out a growl which sounded more like a purr. Jess put his hand on the dog to quiet him. The bird hopped about a moment more and then flew leisurely away. It's a sign from the spirits, 
Jess said quietly. We made a worthy offering. He walked slowly as part of a great procession, though only the puppy could be seen, slowly forward carrying the queen's wreath to the sacred grove. He forced himself deep into the dark center of the grove and kneeling, laid the wreath upon the thick carpet of golden needles. Father, into thy hands I commend her spirit. He knew Leslie would have liked these words. They had the ring of the sacred grove in them. The solemn procession wound its way through the sacred grove homeward to the castle. Like a single bird across a storm-cloud sky, a tiny piece winged its way through the chaos inside his body. Help, Jess, help me! A scream shattered the quietness. Jess raced to the sound of Maybelle's cry. She had gotten halfway across on the tree bridge and now stood there grabbing the upper branches, terrified to move either forward or backward. Okay, Maybelle! The words came out more steadily than he felt. Just hold still. I'll get you. He was not sure the branch would hold the weight of them both. He looked down at the water. It was low enough for him to walk across, but still swift. Suppose it swept him off his feet. He decided for the branch. He inched out on it until he was close enough to touch her. He'd have to get her back to, to the home side of the creek. Okay, he said. Now back up. I can't. I'm right here, Maybell. You think I'm going to let you fall? Here, he put out his right hand. Hold on to me and slide sideways on the thing. She let go with her left hand for a moment and then grabbed the branch again. I'm scared, Jesse. I'm too scared. Of course you're scared. Anybody'd be scared. You just got to trust me, okay? I'm not going to let you fall, Maybelle. I, I promise you. She nodded, her eyes still wide with fear, but she let go of the branch and took his hand straightening a little and swaying. He gripped her tightly. Okay, now, it ain't far. Just slide your right foot a little way, then bring your left foot up close. I forgot which is right. The front one, he said patiently, the one closest to home. She nodded again and obediently moved her right foot a few inches. Now, just let go of the branch with your other hand and hold on to me tight. She let go of the branch and squeezed his hand. Good, you're doing great. Now slide a little ways more. She swayed, but did not scream, just dug her little fingernails into the palm of his hand. Great, fine, you're all right. The same quiet, assuring voice of the paramedics on emergency. But his heart was bongoing against his chest. Okay, okay, a little more now. When her right foot came at last to the part of the branch which rested on the bank, she fell forward, pulling him down. Watch it, Maybelle. He was off balance, but he fell not into the stream, but with his chest across Maybelle's legs, his own legs waving in the empty air above the water. Whew! He was laughing with relief. What you trying to do, girl? Kill me? She shook her head, a solemn no. I know I swore on the Bible not to follow you, but I woke up this morning and you was gone. I had to do some things. She was scraping at the mud on her bare legs. I just wanted to find you so you wouldn't be so lonesome. She hung her head, but I got too scared. He pulled himself around until he was sitting beside her. They watched P.T. swimming across the current, carrying him too swiftly, but he not seeming to mind. He climbed out well below the crabapple and came running back to where they sat. Everybody gets scared sometimes, Maybelle. You don't have to be ashamed. He saw a flash of Leslie's eyes as he was going into the girl's room to see Janice Avery. Everybody gets scared. 
P.T. ain't scared, and he even saw Leslie. It ain't the same for dogs. It's like the smarter you are, the more things can scare you. She looked at him in disbelief, but you weren't scared. Lord, Maybelle, I was shaking like jello. You're just saying that. He laughed. He couldn't help being glad she didn't believe him. He jumped up and pulled her to her feet. Let's go eat. He let her beat him to the house. When he walked into the basement classroom, he saw Mrs. Myers had already had Leslie's desk taken out of the front of the room. Of course, by Monday, just knew. But still, but still, at the bus stop, he looked up, half expecting to see her running up across the field, her lovely, even rhythmic run. Maybe she was already at school. Bill had dropped her off, as he did some days when, when she was late for the bus. But then, when just came into the room, her desk was no longer there. Why were they all in such a rush, in such a rush to be rid of her? He put his head down on his own desk, his whole body heavy and cold. He could hear the sounds of the whispers, but not the words. Not that he wanted to hear the words. He was suddenly ashamed that he thought he might be regarded with respect by the other kids. Trying to profit for himself from Leslie's death. I wanted to be the best, the fastest runner in school, and now I am. Lord, he made himself sick. He didn't care what the others said or what they thought, just as long as they left him alone, just as long as he didn't have to talk to them or meet their stares. They had all hated Leslie, except maybe Janice. Even after they'd given up trying to make Leslie miserable, they'd kept on despising her, as though there was one of them worth the nails on Leslie's little toe. And even he himself had entertained the traitorous thought that now he would be the fastest. Mrs. Myers barked the command to stand for the allegiance. He didn't move. Whether he couldn't or wouldn't, he didn't really care. What could she do to him after all? Jesse Aarons, will you step out into the hall, please? He raised his leaden body and stumbled out of the room. He thought he heard Gary Fulcher giggle, but he couldn't be sure. He leaned against the wall and waited for Monster Mouth Myers to finish singing, Oh, say, can you see? and join him. He could hear her giving the class some sort of assignment and arithmetic before she came out and quietly closed the door behind her. Okay, shoot, I don't care. She came over so close to him that he could smell her dime store powder. Jesse, her voice was softer than he had ever heard it, but he didn't answer. Let her yell. He was used to that. Jesse, she repeated, I just want to give you my sincere sympathy. The words were like a Hallmark card, but the tone was new to him. He looked up into her face despite himself. Beside her turned up glasses, Mrs. Myers's narrow eyes were full of tears. For a minute, he thought he might cry himself. He and Mrs. Myers standing in the basement hallway crying over Leslie Burke. It was so weird he almost laughed instead. When my husband died, Jess could hardly imagine Mrs. Myers ever having had a husband. People kept telling me not to cry, kept trying to make me forget. Mrs. Myers loving, Mrs. Myers loving mourning. How could you picture it? But I didn't want to forget. She took her handkerchief from her sleeve and blew her nose. Excuse me, she said. This morning when I came in, somebody had already taken out her desk. She stopped and blew her nose again. It, it, we, I never had such a student, and all my years of teaching, I shall always be grateful. He wanted to comfort her. He wanted to unsay all the things he had said about her, even unsay the things Leslie had said. Lord, don't ever let her find out. So I realize, if it's hard for me, how much harder it must be for you. Let's try to help each other, shall we? Yes, um, 
He couldn't think of anything else to say. Maybe someday, when he was grown, he would write her a letter and tell her that Leslie Burke had thought she was a great teacher or something. Leslie wouldn't mind. Sometimes, like the Barbie doll, you need to give people you need to give people something that's for them, not just something that makes you feel good giving it. Because Mrs. Myers had helped him already by understanding that he would never forget Leslie. He thought about it all day, how before Leslie came, he had been a nothing, a stupid, weird little kid who drew funny pictures and chased around a cow field trying to act big, trying to hide a whole mob of foolish little fears running riot inside his gut. It was Leslie who had taken him from the cow pasture into Terabithia and turned him into a king. He had thought that was it. Wasn't king the best you could be? Now it occurred to him that perhaps Terabithia was like a castle where you came to be knighted. After you stayed for a while and grew strong, you had to move on. For hadn't Leslie, even in Terabithia, tried to push back the walls of his mind and make him see beyond to the shining world, huge and terrible and beautiful and very fragile? Handle with care everything, even the predators. Now it was time for him to move out. She wasn't there, so he must go for both of them. It was up to him to pay back to the world in beauty and caring what Leslie had loaned him in vision and strength. As for the terrors ahead, for he did not fool himself that they were all behind him, well, you just have to stand up to your fear and not let it squeeze you white. Right, Leslie? Right. Bill and Judy came back from Pennsylvania on Wednesday with a U-Haul truck. No one ever stayed long in the old Perkins place. We came to the country for her sake. Now that she's gone, they gave Jessie all of Leslie's books and her paint set with three pads of real watercolor paper. She would want you to have them, Bill said. Jess and his dad helped them load the U-Haul, and noon and noontime his mother brought down ham sandwiches and coffee. A little scared of the a little scared the Burks wouldn't want to eat her food, but needing just knew to do something. At last, the truck was filled, and the Aaronses and the Burks stood around awkwardly, no one knowing how to say goodbye. Well, Bill said, if there's anything we've, we've left that you want, please help yourself. Could I have some of the lumber on the back porch? Jess asked. Yes, of course, anything you see. Bill hesitated, then continued. I meant to give you P.T., he said, but he looked at Jess and his eyes were those of a pleading little boy. But I can't seem to give him up. It's okay. Leslie would want you to keep him. The next day after school, Jess went down and got the lumber he needed, carrying it a couple of boards at a time to the creek bank. He put the two longest pieces across at the narrow place upstream from the crabapple tree, and when he was sure they were as firm and even as he could make them, he began to nail on the cross pieces. What you doing, Jess? Maybell had followed him down again, and as he had guessed, she might. It's a secret, Maybell. Tell me when I finish, okay? I swear on the Bible I won't tell nobody. Not even Billy Jean, not Joyce Ann, not Mama. She was jerking her head back and forth in solemn emphasis. Oh, I don't know about Joyce Ann. You might want to tell Joyce Ann sometime. Tell Joyce Ann something that's secret between you and me? The idea seemed to horrify her. Yeah, I was thinking about it. Her face sagged. Joyce Ann ain't nothing but a baby. Well, she wouldn't likely be a queen first off. You'd have to train her and stuff. Queen? Who gets to be queen? I'll explain it when I finish, okay? 
and when he finished, he put flowers in her hair and led her across the bridge, the great bridge, into Terabithia, which might look to someone with no magic in him like a few planks across a nearly dry gully. Shh, he said. Look. Where? Can you see him? He whispered. All the Terabithians standing on tiptoe to see you. Me? Shh, yes. There is a rumor going around that the beautiful girl arriving today might be the queen they've been waiting for. And that brings me to the conclusion of Catherine Patterson's Bridge to Terabithia. Thank you guys so much for joining me here at Carla Reads the Classics. I hope you enjoyed the story. You know, as I was reading it, I was reminded of Christopher Cross. You know, the singer Christopher Cross. He wrote the song Laura back in the 80s, maybe early 90s. But anyway, his song Laura, uh, this story brought that song and the story of why he wrote it to my mind. Um, Laura was the good friend of Christopher Cross's girlfriend at the time, whose name was Paige. Well, unfortunately, Laura was killed by a stray bullet when she was in the car with her parents after a lacrosse game when she was in college. And they were in the car. Her parents had come to her game at the college to, and they were, uh, after the game, they were in the car talking and figuring out where they were going to go and, and have dinner. And um, Laura also had another friend in the car. Well, anyway, some people a block or so away, as I remember the story, got into some kind of a fight and they started shooting. And Laura was unfortunately hit from that distance away incredibly. And she just didn't make it. And Christopher Cross's girlfriend at the time, Paige, she had such a hard time coming to terms with that loss. And the brilliant artist that Christopher Cross is, he wrote that song, Laura, for her. And um, every time I hear the song, every time I, I think of the, the song or think of him even, I remember that song and what a wonderful thing it was that he wrote that song to help his girlfriend Paige with her grief. And it's such a beautiful song. Um, and uh, I think I'm going to actually go and listen to that song now. Thank you guys so much for listening here at Carla Reads the Classics. I hope you enjoyed the story. It wasn't a super, super happy story, but still a great story. And I will see you here next time. Thanks again for listening.